Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the heightened anticipation of war in Ukraine expressed by President Biden as U.S. intelligence dismisses Putin's recent pledge to withdraw forces as a fake redeployment as more Russian forces are poised to attack. Joining us to discuss why Putin would attack, given that he is able to destabilize Ukraine now and could do so indefinitely, is Gregory Treverton, a professor of the practice of international relations and spatial sciences at the University of Southern California, who has served in government for the first Senate Select Committee on Intelligence Handling Europe for the National Security Council and was chairman of the National Intelligence Council from 2014 to 2017. His books include Dividing Divided States, Beyond the Great Divide, Relevance and Uncertainty in National Intelligence, and Science for Policy, and he joins us to discuss how much Putin has backed himself into a corner. He argues that since Putin is impetuous, anything is possible, but Putin has absolutely no reason to invade Ukraine, and the last thing Germany wants is for Russian gas supplies to be cut off by sanctions. Then we'll look into how effective sanctions would be against Russia and its $2 trillion in capital flight parked abroad, at least $150 billion of which is Putin's. Joining us is James Henry, an economist, lawyer and investor journalist who has written extensively about global banking, debt crises, tax havens and economic development. The former chief economist at McKinsey & Company, he is the co-founder with David K. Johnston of the new investive reporting news service, dcreport.org, and is the author of Blood Bankers. Then finally, we'll examine the nationwide attack on school boards as the Republicans, now the party of trolling and culture wars, are unleashing Trumpsters who are showing up at school boards and election boards to intimidate officials and drive them out of office. Joining us is Kevin Komashuro, an internationally recognized expert on educational policy, school reform, teacher preparation, and educational equity and social justice, the former dean at the University of San Francisco School of Education. His books include Troubling Education and Teaching Toward Democracy, and we will discuss the school board recall election in San Francisco and the extent that right-wing interests are using Asian Americans in their efforts to undermine and abolish affirmative action. And before we go to our first guest, since we are now fully independent, your support for this program is vital to keep us online and on a growing number of radio stations across the country. And while we operate on a low budget, we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org to help ensure that background briefing is sustainable into the future so that we can continue to provide a daily news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests, both at home and abroad. And for those listeners who have issues with PayPal, we now have made it easier to donate simply by credit card. So if you are in a position to give support or have been meaning to but have been unable, please go to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Gregory Treverton, who's a professor of the practice of international relations and spatial sciences at the University of Southern California, who has served in government for the first Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, handling Europe and the National Security Council, and was chairman of the National Intelligence Council from 2014 to 2017. His books include Dividing Divided States, Beyond the Great Divide, Relevance and Uncertainty in National Intelligence, and Science for Policy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gregory Treverton. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Gregory. And I guess you're as puzzled as I am about what's going on with Putin. I mean, every day now, and we seem to be running out of time, the warnings from the White House get more and more intense and more and more certain, I guess, that Putin is about to invade. And this withdrawal that he mentioned the other day in the press conference after his meeting with the new German Chancellor Scholz, that turns out to be a fake. He's actually sending more troops in than he is pulling out. And that was done as a sort of, as again, as a sort of fake. So you used to be the chairman of the National Intelligence Council, but the intelligence must be 
alarming if for Biden to be saying what he's saying unless that's a tactic on Biden's part to basically serve as a deterrent and to smoke Putin out. Well, I think the intelligence piece is really very interesting, and it's uh, it's kind of new ground. I mean, there's always the tension and intelligence between do you want to say something publicly or at some risk for your sources, right? And so in this case, the administration has gone really pretty far in, in making uh, intelligence public. It seems to me they've done that for a deterrent purpose, basically to say to Putin, we're on to you, we understand, we know what you're up to, and hope that will be deterring. But it is a very uh, interesting um, experience in intelligence, one that's that gone farther than, um, in my experience, has, has been usual. And I applaud them for it in a sense. I've always thought that, you know, intelligence, classical intelligence officer wanted to have perfect certainty and tell nobody, right? <clears throat> but uh, it's only useful if you can use it, and I think they've used it quite well. It does mean we're in this funny position where the Russians keep saying, well, we have no intention of attacking, and then the administration keeps saying, oh, they're ready. They're ready. It could come any day. Uh, so it's a curious combination. I continue to think that uh, Putin has absolutely no reason to invade. Why would you want to uh, buy an, an insurgency, for instance? Uh, but he is impetuous, and he's also put himself in quite a corner. He's made demands on NATO that NATO can't adhere to. And so I worry that... Um, that he'll feel like he has to do something. I doubt that that'll be an invasion in any case, but um, it is a worrisome circumstance. And the challenge, as far as I'm concerned, for the Biden administration and for NATO is to, you know, to find enough ways to let him save face and uh, and climb down from what were demands he knew couldn't be met. But if the Biden administration is weaponizing intelligence in a way that you as a former intelligence professional haven't seen in your career, is that to say that the intelligence is solid? I mean, we know that intelligence can often be used as propaganda. Yes, I think I think they wouldn't do this unless they had pretty solid intelligence. We've had you know reporting from The New York Times and others uh, about the 2016 elections, and apparently I had just left to... Uh, uh, when that report came out, but apparently in that, that circumstance, there was uh, a source of some sort. I don't know what it was and wouldn't be able to say if I did, um, but a source of some sort that was that was relatively close to Putin and therefore giving a pretty, pretty good information. So my sense is that they wouldn't do this unless they had pretty good, pretty good information. At the same time, they obviously don't want to blow a source or blow an information source. So it is it is always a tricky a tricky balance to strike, and I think that uh, it's on the balance been useful to do what they've done and use it as a an effect a kind of intelligence as a deterrent, which is I think you know relatively unusual in world affairs, and um, they've done it so far. We'll see, but so far a, a good job I think. And again, I'm speaking with. Gregory Trevenden, a professor of the practice of international relations and spatial sciences at the University of Southern California, who has served in government for the first Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, handling Europe and the National Security Council, and he was chairman of the National Intelligence Council from 2014 to 2017, and his books include Dividing Divided States, Beyond the Great Divide, Relevance and Uncertainty in National Intelligence, and Science for Policy. So, obviously... Putin is able to destabilize Ukraine and basically do it indefinitely. So there's no reason why this crisis couldn't go on for a decade, right, until he gets what he wants. So where do you think the off-ramp is? I know there's a lot of talk about off-ramps. One assumes that in the six-hour-long conversation that Macron had uh, with Putin recently and then the, what, four-hour conversation that Scholz had a couple of days ago, probably the Germans and the French did assure Putin that they would veto any application by Ukraine to join NATO. So he must be getting assurances that nobody has any real intentions to invite Ukraine into NATO, at least, what, for God knows how long, but certainly not, not at the moment. No, I think that's right. And the Ukrainians said the same thing, and 
you know, uh, this, the NATO issue a year ago wasn't even an issue in Ukraine. In some sense, it's only Putin that's created it. So uh, in that sense, I think that's one of the things that could be done and, and hope that, they, you know, by offering negotiations on missiles and other things, by offering some confidence-building measures, by continuing to talk, as uh, Dean Russ said years ago, better to jaw, jaw, jaw than war, war, war. And I, I hope that's how this one turns out. The more we spread it out, it seems the better. Um, the more we can talk about what we can talk about, uh, also the better. So um, it just seems to me that if I were in Putin's position, I would say that the last thing I want to do is invade Ukraine. Uh, that would bring down sanctions, bring an insurgency. I mean, there's, as far as I can tell, no positive. Uh, he's got plenty of tools if he wants to keep Ukraine slightly stabilized. He's already done that and succeeded at that. And from my perspective, almost anything he does more than that only pushes Ukraine further west, which can't be any part of his uh, his imagining. So uh, it does, at least it seems to me, there's a, a strong hope that diplomacy can find us a way out of this. But as you say, it may continue for, I mean, it's going to continue uh, in some way for, for a long, long time. After all, it's Already now, the the conflict in Ukraine goes back to 2014. So we've already been at this for eight years. And so it will, I think, likely continue. But uh, I hope and think it will continue without war. And Gregor Trevenden, is it likely that Schultz, the new German chancellor, when he was at the White House uh, recently, President Biden kept insisting that if Russian tanks crossed the border into Ukraine, that Biden will see to it that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is cancelled. Schultz didn't make a categoric agreement on that point. He's apparently under a lot of pressure. German industry does not want gas cut off, and, and I don't imagine the people of Germany would be too comfortable in the winter without gas, or, and that also applies to Western Europe in general. So, again, Schultz must have told Putin that the last thing the Germans want is for their gas supplies to be cut off, right? I would think that's right. I mean, I would think in the end, if push came to shove and uh, Putin really did make a major invasion, then the Germans would probably have no choice but to at least suspend. There's nothing has passed through the Nord Stream 2 yet anyway, so suspend any deliveries. But that's obviously not something they want. They've had a cold winter and a bad winter already, so um, that would be a bad outcome. And it's probably also a bad outcome for, for Putin as well. So um, again, it seems to me that's another reason not to uh, for him not to invade. And my guess is Schultz conveyed that in a diplomatic way to him. Um, as I said, I think if the push came to shove, uh, the Germans would be under great pressure to at least suspend for the time being any opening of the pipeline. But at that press conference that followed their marathon meeting in the Kremlin a couple of days ago, Gregor Treverton. Putin did say that there was a precedent for a war in Europe when reporters talked about how catastrophic it would be to have a war in Europe over Ukraine. Putin pointed out that there was a war in Europe, and that was the NATO's war against Serbia. And then Schultz then chimed in and said, well, that was because the Serbs were conducting genocide against non-Serbs, to which Putin replied, the genocide is happening in the Donbass, where ethnic Russians are being murdered by the Ukrainians, which is an absurd claim. So does yes, he believe no, that, or does he, is that, I mean, I, that's where I, I worry about this guy, what kind of grip he has on reality and history. No, that's exactly right. I, mean, I, I, I do too, it's why I worry that he's impetuous, because that is, you know, pretty crazy to believe, and you can you can understand him when he sympathizes, when he looks, harks back to 900, when Russia and Ukraine were kind of a, the same peoples. That's a long time ago. You can also sympathize with him when he feels like NATO has kind of stuck it to Russia throughout and maybe done things that uh, previous Russian leaders didn't expect. Although there were no commitments, I think there was the expectation that NATO wouldn't go right up to Russia's border. So you can sympathize with those uh, parts of his psyche, I think. But, yeah, that assertion that, you know, it's it's 
it's basically the separatists that are initiating the violence in the breakaway regions. And so to think that there's genocide going on there is, is really pretty, pretty crazy, pretty worrisome. Well, Gregory Trevor, and I thank you for joining us. Let's stay in touch and hope uh, that in the next few days things calm down and there's an exit strategy here because it does it certainly got everybody's attention. And the feeling is if you listen to our leaders, then we are to expect war, and that's just a horrible prospect. It is, it is, it is, absolutely. Well, I'm happy to, do, to stay in touch, and thank you. And again, I'm speaking with Gregory Trevenant, a professor of the practice of international relations and spatial sciences at the University of Southern California, who has served in government for the first Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, handling Europe and the National Security Council, and was chairman of the National Intelligence Council from 2014 to 2017. His books include Dividing Divided States Beyond the Great Divide, Relevance and Uncertainty in in National Intelligence, and Science for Policy. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into how effective sanctions would be against Russia and its $2 trillion in capital flight parked abroad, at least $150 billion of which is Putin's. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is James Henry, an economist, lawyer, and investigative journalist who has written extensively about global banking, debt crises, tax havens, and economic development. The former chief economist at McKinsey & Company, he's the co-founder with David K. Johnson of the new investigative reporting news service, dcreport.org, and is the author of Blood Bankers. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Henry. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And Russia, of course, is facing huge sanctions if they the tanks cross the border. President Biden seems to think that'll happen at any day now, in spite of Russia's apparent fake withdrawal of troops, uh, which apparently is not happening. But basically, in terms of Russia's vulnerability, his number one expert is oil and gas, and then minerals, and then arms. But they're followed by capital flight, right? There's a what over a trillion. Uh, Absolutely. Well, I've been following this more than that. Um, as of 2016, uh, you know, if you capitalize uh, doing a kind of a fancy econometric analysis of the Russian balance of payments and their foreign debt, um, you get a net offshore private wealth stash of about 1.2 trillion. That's as of 2016. And we know that since then, all the economic data is not uh, complete, that it is increased. You know, today is a good example. You have the ruble uh, at 76 to the dollar. I mean, this is, you know, since uh, all these shenanigans began, the ruble has taken a hit. Um, You know, everyone is taking a hit here. The stock markets in the United States and in Europe are down. Uh, The Russian stock market is down 3.71%. But one of the key themes here is that in addition to all the other levers that the West has to apply here, uh, the fact is that Russia is not a very attractive place to invest, especially if you're, you know, very, very wealthy and you're afraid of uh, political repercussions if you you try to, uh, you know, step out of line with the dictator. Uh, and Putin is not really the same kind of Hitlerian dictator that we have, you know, uh, talked about in the past. But he has uh, increasingly taken more and more reins. And this crisis, I think, is largely of his making. Um, and he's also cracking down on the domestic opposition, just like uh, dictators tend to do in these foreign situations. So what I'm suggesting is that Right now, if there's more than $2 trillion offshore of private Russian uh, flight wealth, 
mostly invested through havens and offshore banks and banks in places like Switzerland um, and Cyprus, you know, that there is leverage uh, to be applied there. There's two ways to go. One is, you know, you could become much more uh, serious about enforcing anti-money laundering laws. Uh, I mean, the, the city of London is often referred to as Moscow on the Thames. It has attracted so much Russian flight capital. You have, you know, major, many of their uh, football teams are owned by Russians. Uh, newspapers and so forth. So, you know, they've had uh, welcomed with open arms, Boris Johnson, the conservatives, uh, very close relationship with these these folks. Um, the United States is n no exception either. We have uh, major uh, Russian oligarchs who have invested heavily in the United States. Um, one of their favorite uh, causes was Donald Trump. Uh, they really helped to finance his recovery after 2000. Uh, when he could no longer borrow uh, from U.S. banks. And so you have a whole litany of Russian oligarchs who kind of participated in financing the Trump uh, recovery. Um, so, you know, I guess I, I'm of two minds with respect to this. <laughs> so the, the devil in me wants to say, let's uh, open our arms to Russian flight capital. Let's uh, make it easier for the Russians, uh, for the wealthy Russians to take their money out of Russia. Let's decapitalize the whole economy. Um, you know, let's make it much more attractive for Russians to invest abroad. So, I mean, there's a kind of a number of levers that I don't think the U.S. and, you know, we've talked about uh, various kinds of sanctions that would be applied, uh, canceling, you know, the $10 billion uh you know, the Nord, Nordwest pro, uh, project pipeline. Nord Stream 2, you Nord, mean? Nord Stream 2 pipeline. I mean, that would be, you know, I think Putin would look at that as a, as a, as something that would cost the Europeans as much as it would, as much as it would uh, cost him. And it's a, it's a rounding error uh, compared to this one, you know, this $2 trillion of off, offshore uh, Russian flight capital. Um, that we have to, to play with. The other sanctions, I think, you know, I mean, there are stiffer sanctions being considered, like applying the, uh, you know, sort of interfering with the international clearing system, the SWIFT system for uh, international trade sanctions. Again, that has, uh, you know, it's a double-edged sword, and, and, it, and it's something that's not done without cost to, uh, to Western uh, businesses. But in the case of Russian flight capital, we have a perfect target here. You know, it's sort of, it comes from lots of dubious sources. It's wide open to investigation. Um, on the other hand, you know, there's, uh, every time Putin uh, raises the stakes in the, in the Ukraine, it pours out of, out of Russia as it's doing right now. And pouring out of Ukraine, right? I mean, well, it's you know, Ukraine is also no, uh, you know, competitive paradise. I mean, they also have a handful of oligarchs who basically dominate uh, that economy and move quite freely back and forth between Russia and the Ukraine in terms of their investments, some of them. Um, no, it, you know, it, we had hoped in the wake of the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, if you go back 30 years, um, to have uh, a competitive free market economies with democratic systems and uh, all kinds of institutions that we thought would be easy to migrate to these countries, and it just hasn't happened. Uh, so one of the side effects of that is that they, you know, they're they're still be they're still heavily dependent on traditional businesses like uh, oil and gas, and uh, in Ukraine's case, uh, agriculture is about 11% of their exports. So you know, you you still have. Uh, a lot of development left to do in these countries with respect to making them more competitive democracies. But, uh, you know, I, I would argue that in this sanction situation, we have to take the gloves off with respect to the uh, the huge amount of Russian flight capital that's come offshore and, you know, basically call the question of, you know, was this legitimate? Um, you know, can we uh, if can we make it easier for legitimate Russian flight capital to come out? Uh, at this time, and uh, on the other hand, raise the, uh, the penalties for the huge amount that's uh, from illicit sources or kleptocracy or organized crime.
And again, I'm speaking with James Henry, who is an economist, lawyer, and investigative journalist who has written extensively about global banking, debt crises, tax havens, and economic development, the former chief economist at McKinsey & Company. He's the co-founder with David K. Johnson of the new investigative reporting news service, dcreport.org, and is the author of Blood Bankers. So amongst this $2 trillion of flight capital from Russia parked abroad, there's a, at least $150 billion, apparently, that Putin has. I don't know how much of it he's parked through some of his cutouts. I know when the Panama Papers exposed his friend, the cellist, had, what, $8 billion? Yeah. You don't, you don't make, make $8 billion playing the cello, I, I assure you. Exactly. Exactly. Well, there are a number of his cronies who have uh, been participating in this. Look, I'm sure that, uh, you know, it's it's a... Uh, not a perfect comparison, but Adolf Hitler was the wealthiest guy in Germany by you know 1939, uh, and he had. We find uh, in the last 10 years there's some new research that showed that he had offshore accounts uh, in the UK and Switzerland. So it's not surprising to me that Putin would have offshore money and that it would be very well protected, not in Russian banks that he can't really uh, uh, be sure you know aren't going to <laughs> be. Uh, a den of thieves, but are protected by the finest institutions uh, in the world. You know, the independent judiciaries, this, you know, the Swiss economy prides itself on having uh, independent courts and uh, uh, regular democratic elections. And so there's this parasitic relationship between the kleptocracy that goes on in the world and the fact that there's the place that they can invest the money like the like Switzerland or the United States or the UK, you know, have the uh, protection of law available to investors. It's a real uh, kind of paradox. But yeah, I, I'm sure that Putin himself could be targeted. Uh, and certainly, probably in, the, in his case, he's used lots of uh, intermediaries to insulate himself from that. And, you know, he's also investing pretty heavily in these huge uh, Dasha's on the sh- on the coast. <laughs> so the Navalny's group had these pictures uh, last month. It was, uh, you know, of his uh, vast Versailles type, uh, you know, sort of uh, construction project uh, on the on the uh, Black Sea. But you know, I'm not sure what motivates this guy. It's not clear to me that it's uh, money anymore. I mean, because this is objectively speaking, what he's doing now is a lose lose situation for everybody with respect to uh, the economy and the world economy is, you know, we've got COVID, Russia's like the third country in, in, on the globe in terms of total COVID uh, cases and fatalities. And uh, just to, yesterday, uh, Chairman Xi of, uh, of China was impugning people to have a diplomatic solution to this issue. It's not clear that China wants to follow Putin down this path that he's He's going on because it's going to be enormously costly if there's a uh, demonstrable invasion. So do you think then that Biden's threats of sanctions are getting through to Putin? I think Biden has had a communications problem. He has uh, been kind of talking out of two different sides. He made that faux pas a few weeks ago in which he suggested that a minor infraction of uh, Ukraine territory would not really be, you know, invite that uh, hard of response. Uh, that was not the signal to send to a guy like Putin. Um, and uh, more recently, we've been anticipating Russian moves and predicting military invasions every other day. Uh, you know, I think uh, at the same time, we're telling U.S. diplomats and citizens in the Ukraine to get the hell out of there. So. There's a lot of mixed signals here. I think the Ukrainians are uh, confused about to what extent the United States is really uh, willing to go to bat for them and how uh, you know how tough any kind of sanctions are. I don't think they expect us to be, you know, sending uh, you know the uh, you know the troops anytime soon. We've never you know they've never had that expectation, but I think they would like to be able to count on us to be there for them with aid. Uh, with military support, and they're pretty disappointed in the response of some allies here, like uh, Germany, like Israel, that have kind of walked more of a uh, sort of a fine line between uh, Russia and, and NATO. But I, I think Biden has toughened up 
and uh, I would I would encourage him. The one lesson we learn from history here is that uh, you know dictators who put large military uh, movements on the borders of other countries and then uh, hold the world hostage, uh, you know, uh, they they watch carefully and they learn from that and they see how the world responds. And so it's unlikely to be the last time around that, uh, you know, this kind of tactic is is exercised if uh, if he's allowed to get away with it. Well, we've <laughs> seen dictators do that before. You mentioned Hitler. He did that on the border with the Czechoslovakia, uh, Sudetenland, and at the Munich conference, and then pulled back, right, and then then invaded. So. Well, the Su Sudetenland was a, was a clear example where they, you know, uh, put troops on the border, and then there were negotiations about that, and then, uh, you know, in, in the Munich conference uh, a year later, and uh, that was uh, supposed to solve everything, and then uh, Hitler was basically laughing at people. You know, sort of blaming the West for it was very similar. I mean, it's you know bizarre if you go back and read the history. It was, uh, uh, Hitler was uh, uh, blaming the whole crisis on the West and saying he was Germany was being encircled. It was all Britain's fault. Um, the other thing that happened as soon as uh, the Munich conference uh, ended and he he got kind of carte blanche um, uh, to go into Czechoslovakia. Uh, the, um, you know, the, the, he turned on domestic, uh, he, uh, he unleashed a lot of domestic repression. Kristallnacht ha happened in the, in the wake of uh, the Munich settlement. And I think in Russia today, you're seeing, you know, Navalny just putting up, being put on trial for charges that he might get 15 years for. There's severe crackdowns going on on Russian uh, opposition uh, right now. So it's, there, it's not surprising that if Putin is allowed to get away with this kind of foreign policy that he'll become much more repressive at home. But you mentioned the tax havens around the world that's got the two trillion dollars worth of capital flight from Russia and 150 billion at least as Putin's. Then most of these oligarchs have their money in these tax havens. You know, Delaware, <laughs> the President Biden state, of course, is a tax haven. We have all kinds of tax havens here in South Dakota and others. Uh, they're almost competing. But we also have lobbyists, for God's sake. I mean, the lobbyists for the Nord Stream 2 pipeline are BGR Government Affairs, which is of, run by former Ronald Reagan aide Ed Rogers. You've got Roberti Global, a firm run by Vincent Roberti, a big Democratic donor. And then you've got McClarty Inbound, a firm owned by uh, Richard Burt, uh, who's had long-time ties with uh, Russia and worked for Donald Trump's 2016 campaign, which led him to be investigated by Robert Mueller. They're all getting tons of money to lobby for the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. They're, in effect, working for the Russians. And there they are in Washington, all highly respected in their, that well, there are disgusting no world of uh, lobbying. There are kind of no professional standards, as far as I know, that apply to uh, foreign representation of lobby. You have to register if you're, uh, but uh, as we saw in the case of Manafort, you know, he had all these dubious connections in Ukraine and Russia. Um, and then he, before he got his plea bargain, he was headed to jail for, uh, you know, for his role in the Trump campaign. The, uh, there, there are for, you know, there, the legal profession has professional code of ethics. They're, you know, often violated, but at least there's a process by which lawyers have to, uh, at least in in, at some level, you know, sort of pay attention to ethical issues. There is no such standard for lobbyists, as far as I know, and in terms of who you can represent, whether you know you can represent hardened dictators. Um, I'm just involved in a in a case involving a major Swiss bank, which has been a serial violator of money laundering rules, uh, servicing kleptocrats all over the planet for, you know, as long as I can recall, which is back to the 1980s. And they have never uh, been brought to uh, to justice in terms of uh, their behavior. And they just keep on doing it. So there's a kind of culture of impunity for these large financial institutions and uh, the lobbyists who represent them, uh, you know, just have no consequences. They're able to cash in on 
this kind of uh, shady business. But, uh, you know, yeah, I think that at the end of the day, there's an awful lot of people outside of Russia who are profiting uh, from uh, the, the crimes of, uh, of Putin. So just in closing, then, it's hard to know why Putin would go to war, because he's achieving most of his aims just by threatening Ukraine and continuing to destabilize it, which he can do on the cheap forever, essentially. But if Biden knows something that we don't know, and he keeps telling us that war's about to break out, he's also keeps saying that every time he talks to Putin, he warns him that they're going to be incredibly severe sanctions, and yet nothing seems to change. So at the end of the day, do you think that if there's an invasion, that any of these sanctions are going to make much of a difference? Because Putin's also got a big rainy day for him. He has $660 billion of uh, foreign reserves that he's accumulated. But those could swiftly dissipate. And uh, it's really a question of uh, willpower on the part of the West. I think that Putin is you know, in the hot seat right now. He's got this big decision to make about whether he pushes this any farther. You're quite right that he's already had a, a pretty... Uh, paralyzing impact on the Ukrainian domestic politics right now. And I'm sure there's, you know, but as this develops, if he does take the next step uh, and it has, tends to have a kind of momentum of its own, there's a real question about what whether his objection, his objectives have to do with the Ukraine uh, and affecting uh, politics there. Ukraine is no prize as an economy to, to take it, to own it. Russia has plenty of land, unlike Germany and under uh, Hitler, um, you know, the, the, there was a, a very good article today in the New York Times that suggested the real target was to try to get NATO to, to back down from planting uh, U.S. Uh, missile bases in Poland and, and other uh, NATO members that are, you know, 100 miles from Russia. And that that's what he's after is some kind of negotiation, uh, negotiated solution with respect to that. Uh, I don't know. I think that the, the, the Biden administration has to be clearer about what they mean by sanctions. That may reflect the fact that there's some disunity within the NATO group. That We, we have the uh, Stoltenberg, who's uh, about to leave the, the, the NATO as uh, general secretary uh, and go off to the Norwegian uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund. Uh, but, uh, you know, he's an economist. He's not really a military uh, background. And, and I think we could we could all get a much if we learn from these earlier episodes, like the negotiation with with the Germans in the 30s, uh, unity on the part of uh, NATO and the United States and absolute clarity about what the consequences will be is an absolute necessity in this situation. And it just it's you know, that's one thing that I would think we 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 must be clearer about what our goals are here. Well, James Henry, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're very, very welcome. And again, I've been speaking with James Henry, an economist, lawyer, and investigative journalist who has written extensively about global banking, debt crises, tax havens, and economic development. The former chief economist at McKinsey & Company, he's the co-founder with David K. Johnston of the new investigative reporting news service, dcreport.org, and is the author of Blood Bankers. We're going to take a restation break back examining the nationwide attack on school boards as the Republicans, now the party of trolling and culture wars, are unleashing Trumpsters who are showing up at school boards and election boards to intimidate officials and drive them out of office. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money, 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 money. There is nothing like a newly minted money, 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 money. Everyone must hanker for the butchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round, round, round. You can keep your watch's ways, for it's only just a phase. Money, money, money makes the world go round. Money, 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 money. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Kevin Kamashuru, who is an internationally recognized expert on educational policy, school reform, teacher preparation, and educational equity and social justice. The former dean at the University of San Francisco School of Education, his books include Troubling Education and Teaching Towards Democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Kevin Kamashuru. Yeah, it's great to be here, Ian. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And the San Francisco School Board recall elections have gotten a lot of national attention. 
and obviously I want to talk to you about it, but in a broader sense, Kevin, school boards have been, across the country, have been the focus of a lot of ire and a lot of ugly stuff from people mostly out of Trump land, out of Trump world, attacking school board members, beating them up, harassing them, haranguing them, etc. This is obviously not what happened in San Francisco, but as an educator, apparently Stephen Bannon has this strategy that he's apparently put into play here on two fronts to get these right-wing radical activists onto school boards and onto election boards, and he seems to be succeeding. Absolutely. I feel like this is a moment when a lot of attention is being played on school boards, and I think it's reflective of at least two crises um, across the nation that we're struggling with. One is around the pandemic and pandemic-related debates like school openings and closures, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, and things like that. And then the other, particularly over the last year, is around um, curriculum, like the attacks on critical race theory, teaching about racism, 1619 project, and both are leading to folks showing up at school boards to protest, threatening school board members, as well as dozens of campaigns to recall elected school board members, as well as, as you're pointing out, um, an equally large number of campaigns to elect more right-wing individuals onto school boards. So yeah, what we're seeing, the recall that we saw in San Francisco, is absolutely a part of a larger campaign to really control education through the electoral process of um, concerning school boards. But it seems that these absurd notions that white children are being humiliated and embarrassed in schools across the country and are made to feel guilty, I mean, it's a complete fiction, but it seems to have traction. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we're, we're building on really kind of, you know, decades of controversies around curriculum, whether it's book bannings, whether it's ethnic studies that present any sort of teaching about uh, the truth about our history, the truth about sort of how society runs, the truth about racism in this country, that presents those kinds of lessons and knowledge as somehow either dangerous or even harmful to young people. And so um, I think that when it's framed in that way, which of course is uh, a very distorted vision of both what it is that we're teaching and why we need to be teaching about what actually has happened and how we continue to experience the legacies of these problems. But when that misrepresentation is out there, it's, it serves, as you're pointing out, it serves as a rallying cry for that big persuadable middle um, who may not be sort of a virulent, maybe Trump supporter, but will still come behind the the censorship of curriculum, the recall of campaigns, like, you know, in San Francisco, for example, um, which isn't grappling with the similar kinds of controversies around curriculum, you saw still in this recall election, um, you saw issues of equity front and center. Like what the media would like to say is, well, this was about um, some people feeling that the school board was putting too much of its time into, quote, equity issues like renaming schools that have you know, that are named after people with really problematic um you know histories or changing the admissions policies of its very prestigious selective enrollment high school so too much attention on these questions of equity and not enough attention on reopening schools even though i mean and all you know all of these things are filled with misinformation right san francisco opened schools at around the time that many other schools were reopening which was last fall but it was perceived as something that was way too delayed way too slow because they're overemphasizing um you know the equity concerns and so who's on the ballot is three of the few people of color that were about to be up for re-election next year anyway um but they get sort of scapegoated in this entire process so lots of misrepresentation and lots of race politics uh, involved in this campaign so are you talking about the three school board uh, members the president Gabriel Lopez, Vice President uh, Volga Moliga, and Alison Collins? Yes, th those are the three that I'm talking about, yeah. 
And it's interesting because so three people of color, three about to be up for re-election. And, you know, what's interesting is that a lot of people are like, oh, this is, you know, exerting our um, sort of participation in the democratic process. But again, A, they were up for re-election anyway in the next year. B, when they were elected, you know, typically there's like 800,000 people that participate in elections. But in this recall election, there were only about 100 something thousand people who actually participated. And how are they replaced? Because, you know, about 70 percent of the of the city of San Francisco voted to recall these three candidates or these three members. But they're not replaced by another election of new people, they're replaced actually by appointees from the mayor, which means that San Francisco School Board is now even less reflective of the voice of the public as it moved towards mayoral control of schools. And one of the other things to kind of think about with this recall campaign is how Asian Americans were positioned and are discussed in the media, because a lot of attention is being played not just on how, ooh, this recall election succeeded, you got a big percentage of the voters recalling these more equity-minded people who talk a lot about equity, but also in the media was who was um, sort of the poster child of kind of the, the the members, the voices of the community that were pushing for the recall, and it were Asian American communities. So a lot of media attention is given to Asian American um, parents, community members, organizations in San Francisco and in the area that were pushing for the recall, because indeed a lot of Asian Americans were pushing for the recall. And why? Um, one of the, so I was saying that there's two things that's talked about in the media as to where the board was mis, quote, misplacing its priorities. And one was um, around renaming certain schools, but the other was the admissions process to its very prestigious selective enrollment high school, which is Lowell High School, which has a large Asian American population. And as is happening across the country, including in higher education, where people are changing their admissions processes to be more holistic. It's called a holistic admissions review that looks at many more criteria than just say standardized test scores as a way to increase the racial diversity of their student population, which is what Lowell High School was moving towards. Um, you see people pushing back, including Asian Americans. It's what's happening with the Supreme Court case around Harvard. Um, with you know who are some of the people that are being called the victims and, and being harmed by affirmative action it's asian american applicants asian americans are being positioned as the victims in the affirmative action debates nationally well that's that was also what was happening here many people were saying asian americans are being harmed by this change in the admissions policies at the selective enrollment high school in san francisco so asian americans get put up front and center as one of the sort of groups that were pushing for this campaign uh, this recall and i think that you know it adds a whole nother layer to the complexity of what was going on to a lot of misunderstanding as well as it's both misunderstandings i think in some ways of what was going on but it also connects to larger debates happening in this country that um, that we see rippling across campaigns, across court battles, and so on, like around affirmative action, like around representation. Um, and so I think that's part of what was folded into this campaign that we need to kind of learn from, right? There's a lot of things going on here um, that are all intertwined with uh, sort of the race anxieties of this moment that is important as you know, Democrats or progressives or liberals or folks just concerned about civil rights have to think about if we want to learn from this event. And again, I'm speaking with Kevin Kamashuru, who is an internationally recognized expert on educational policy, school reform, teacher preparation and educational equity and social justice. The former dean at University of San Francisco School of Education his books include Troubling Education and Teaching Towards Democracy. And we're talking about the San Francisco School Board recall elections where just in simplistic terms and the way it's being reported, Kevin, essentially what happened was that, what are they, two African-Americans and one Latina school board member were voted off largely by Asian-American voters. Is that the big picture here? Um, 
So I don't actually know the breakdown of how people voted. I think what the media wants to say is that the Asian American communities were some of the most vocal opponents um, of the change in policies at the at the school district, and therefore were some of the ones pushing for this recall. Um, but what I would say is, you know, um, who ac actually voted, it was probably a mix of different groups of people. And I would also say, if we look at who was pushing for the recall, as well as who was funding the recall, you're going to see some of the familiar voices, whether it's GOP operatives, whether it's conservative funders, which is not unlike what we're seeing in the recall that's all that's still going on to uh, regarding the progressive district attorney in San Francisco, Chesa Boudin, that that is happening in June, just like what we saw last year with the recall attempt of our governor, Gavin Newsom. You see many different forces, but it's a lot of kind of overlapping forces like what we were talking about earlier. These recalls are not simply about this particular issue or one particular community. It's often, um, sort of nationwide movements that are trying to take advantage of local battles in order to rally voters, in order to push forward a larger agenda that they're trying to see happen. So I would argue recall campaigns across the country are very much interconnected. And so while the media may pay attention to some of the more vocal folks, like some of our Asian American um, community members in San Francisco, I, I don't, I would not at all say that they were the ones who are responsible for pushing forward on the recall campaign, just like I would say that there are a lot of Asian American educators, by the way, in San Francisco who are pushing against the recall to say that this is not a democratic process, that there's a lot of misunderstanding and there's a lot of scapegoating going on. But it, but it was successful, I think, because it tapped into this moment that we're in. Well, apparently Asian Americans make up roughly 34% of San Francisco's population. So, and you pointed out earlier, this was a small percentage of the voters that voted in this recall, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, just again, to repeat some numbers, last time we had a school board election when these folks were elected in, it was over 800,000 people, I believe, who participated in that election. Whereas this time, it was only about 100 something thousand that were participating in recalls. And I think that is another trend that we see with recalls, right, is that you have far fewer people participating in recall elections. And then the people who get who replace them are often voted in with far fewer votes, which by the way was is what would have happened if Newsom was recalled. Many of you will remember it's what happened when Arnold Schwarzenegger was elected as governor. Far fewer people are participating in recall elections. Even far fewer people are voting the replacements in. And in this instance, of course, the people who replace the recalled um, board members are actually appointed by the mayor. They're not even voted in. So these are some of the things that I think we want to kind of push the conversation on is if we want to say, well, what's the alternative? How, what's the way that we want to move forward as we respond to this wave of recall campaigns that are happening? Our message needs to be we need to insist on strengthening democratic institutions, not moving away from things like um, the vote by the public. So we know that conservatives are going after affirmative action and that it's now before the Supreme Court and there's a concern that it will be weakened and struck down. And you mentioned the Harvard case. Is it the case that conservatives in this country are in effect using Asian Americans to basically get rid of uh, affirmative action? Um, I would say absolutely. That is a very, very big part of what is happening right now. So the last three uh, or the three Supreme Court cases that had to do with admissions in um, affirmative action in college admissions were all the same ruling, right? It basically said race cannot be um, like a 
an overriding factor. You can't have race quotas, in other words, but race can be one of many factors if you engage in a holistic review that looks at multiple factors. That's basically what the Supreme Court has argued three times. And in all three of those cases, the, the claim was that affirmative action hurts white students. So what's different with this case is that, or at least with the Harvard case, is, is that um, plaintiffs are arguing that affirmative action hurts Asian American students. And so I, I do think that that is one of the things that's happening. And, and the reason I think that it's a scary moment for affirmative action isn't only because we have a very conservative Supreme Court. It's, I would argue, another reason this is a scary moment for affirmative action is because of the legal reasoning behind affirmative action that actually is what has guided the Supreme Court decisions up until now. In other words, if we look back at the 60s and the Kennedy sort of administration framing of affirmative action, it was very explicitly trying to remedy historic injustices, right? But when the Supreme Court, the first Supreme Court case came along, um, this is back in the late 70s, and you had sort of this swing vote happen. Um, you had sort of, and it was Justice Powell. It's this interesting story of like, four, five, you know, justices were ruling that um, race cannot be a quota. But then you had the swing vote and you had another five justices arguing, but race can be um, a part of a larger set of criteria. And the rationale that guided that decision was different than the rationale from the Kennedy administration. It was actually a rationale that that I think legal scholars, some would call a diversity rationale that said, instead of remedying historic injustices, affirmative action and the use of race is okay if you can make the argument that diversity is needed to create a kind of a robust or a high quality educational um, experience. If diversity is necessary for education, then diversity can be what you look at for admissions. And so we see that now that this is a, a significant shift away from addressing historic injustices, more to kind of representation and diversity. And this is why I'm saying that that rationale is now coming to a head. Because if you now argue that, oh, well, affirmative action is actually hurting some of our students of color, then you're showing that affirmative action is not going to forward the rationale that you're saying has guided the support of affirmative action up until now. So there's a lot of factors, right? There's this kind of rhetorical um, and the, the logic around affirmative action. You also have who's sitting on the Supreme Court. You also have a different kind of scapegoat or um, what some have called like a racial mascot of who's sort of being harmed by affirmative action. And, and I think all of this is sort of coming into play that is giving us a different way to understand why this case is actually quite different than the past three Supreme Court cases. Well, Kevin Kumashiro, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Kevin Kumashiro, who is an internationally recognized expert on educational policy, school reform, teacher preparation, and educational equity and social justice, the former dean at University of San Francisco School of Education. His books include Troubling Education and Teaching Towards Democracy. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past